From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Vice Chief of Space Operations is quarantining tonight after a positive test for COVID-19. An Air Force spokesperson says General David Thompson took a test after a close family member tested positive. Politico reports Air Force Secretary Barbara Barrett, Chief of Space Operations General Jay Raymond, and Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown have all tested negative in the last 24 hours. Catch-up contributions to your thrift savings plan account are about to get easier starting January 1st. The TSP will automatically route contributions over a participant's annual limit to catch up contributions. GovExec reports the change will make sure employees get the 5% agency match for the extra contributions too. Another General Services Administration contract will include the Defense Department's cybersecurity requirements. Carlton Schuffelbarger of the Office of the Information Technology Category at GSA says the new Polaris Small Business Government-Wide Acquisition Vehicle will include cybersecurity maturity model certification requirements. FCW reports GSA's already built CMMC requirements into its STARS-3 request for proposals. The General Services Administration is on the hunt for a new smaller office space for the Social Security Administration. As the pandemic continues and employees work remotely, a smaller real estate footprint could be the way of the future. Dan Matthews is Commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. SSA is not the only agency that's looking at at least new space, if not smaller space. The Justice Department signing some new deals recently. How are you seeing the virus and, and the way that employees are working today and potentially working years out affecting the way that the government's looking for space and using space? Great question. Thank you. And first, thank you for having me here today. Uh, it is a question that a lot of us are thinking about in the federal real estate. And I think the short answer is for some agencies, I think it's likely we will see some reductions going forward. But for others, particularly agencies that have significant classified work going on where telework doesn't really lend itself very well, we could see some expansions. So it's a, a little bit of a mixed bag in that respect. But for GSA, we've really been working hard to make sure that we are in the market moving our projects forward on schedule, on budget. In many ways, uh, you know, this is, as a real estate consumer, uh, this is a good market for, for the federal government to, to find value for the taxpayer and for our tenants. It's kind of counterintuitive, Dan, because I think in the first couple of months of the pandemic, the automatic assumption was, well, it will, the, the workplace will look dramatically different moving forward and, and people will want to work remotely and so a smaller footprint seemed automatic. But it sounds like at least what you're getting at with the idea about the classified space might apply to unclassified spaces too, where you want to have people come back to the office and maybe the 150 square foot per person rule that applied for a long time doesn't apply anymore. Maybe people want to be more spaced out. Maybe people want to be back in uh, cube environments so that they're a little more isolated from other people instead of the open environments that we had for a long time. Are, are there answers to some of these questions yet, or are we still in the thinking about them stages as we try to understand what things will look like going forward? So it really depends on the agency and, and their function and what they're trying to accomplish. If you think about here in the Washington, D.C. area, right, we obviously have some pretty critical facilities that we operate for our tenants. Think operation centers and, and things that are are, are, you know, 
military facilities where people have to be there doing their work. And in those situations, we're really controlling for um, spread through reducing the density. And they may be sh uh, using different shifts to, to decrease the number of people in this space at any given time. But long-term, I think the key is really going to be about flexibility. Uh, agencies have pivoted to a much larger telework footprint during this coronavirus. Uh, there's no question about that. And there is real value that agencies are learning through that process. They're modernizing their technology. They're, they're digitizing their work processes so you're not tied to a file cabinet and, and, and physical paper files. That allows mobility, and it also allows um, the opportunity to uh, kind of cut that connection from an individual person and an individual desk, and that allows us to kind of extract that excess capacity from a real estate portfolio and really return value to the tenant and the taxpayer. Historically, Dan, has the role of PBS been more tactical or strategic in working with an agency? And do you expect that role to change over time as a result of the virus? It's a great question. I would say it was more tactical uh, if you go back, say, eight years ago or so. But, but really, during the Obama administration, actually, there was a more strategic approach about trying to find that value for the taxpayer and the tenant. Uh, Clearly, there is excess capacity in the federal real estate portfolio. And so there's been a downward trend in the total consumption of, of real estate for the federal government for years now. And I think in many ways, overall, what we're learning in this massive kind of mandatory telework experience, we'll see a continuation of that trend, perhaps even an acceleration in some tenants. But mitigating that will be other agencies, like I mentioned earlier, that may have a more uh, a work uh, activity going on that doesn't lend itself to telework where they may want a little more distance, and we likely will be acquiring more space for those types of entities. You see it now in some of our procurements. For some agencies, we're looking at expansions at this point. How do you build elasticity into your inventory so that maybe the footprint needs to be smaller in the next 18 months, two years, three years, but maybe five, 10 years out, there are gains needed, people come back to the office or things start to look differently. How do you do that without moving a whole bunch of agencies around, especially if the market is not as favorable to the, the people looking for leases as the people trying to get space leased? Well, so we have a balance between government-owned real estate and private sector leases. In fact, right now it's about 50-50. Uh, and so we have flexibility in that respect with leases. When they expire, we can leave depending on the terms that we get. Although what I would say right now in the market, in many of the markets we're in, leasing is on sale. It is a good time for the government to be securing longer term, firm term leases when we have a requirement that we know is going to extend out into the future. Uh, we're getting fabulous rates. Good, we, we hire the best brokers to negotiate deals on our behalf and we're really getting tremendous uh, pricing. Uh, just uh, last year alone, we came in 12% on average below the midpoint of the market in all of our lease deals. Historically, we used to average about three to 5%. So we're getting really fabulous results. And we don't replace all of our leases you know, in one year. We have 100 million square feet of leases expiring over the next five years. So next year, we'll probably replace 20, 25% of those. And those requirements where we know we have a long-term need, we should go with a long firm-term lease. If we're not sure that we've got a potential backfill tenant, if our our agency that we're leasing for changes their their operational posture and needs to give back space well in those situations we might want a shorter term lease 
but we, we you know, mitigate that risk on a, on a task, on a case-by-case -case basis. Dan Matthews, the Public Building Service, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Up next, tracking acquisition leaders at the Department of Homeland Security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who does the agency need where to keep acquisitions on track? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Homeland Security Department has a lot of eyes on its procurement projects at its components and across the entire agency. That might be part of the problem, according to the Government Accountability Office. Marie Mack is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Issues at GAO. Marie, thanks very much for coming on. Looking at your work, and I confess that I am a little bit confused by all the org charts and lists of who has procurement authorities across the department. Clear up for me what the core of the issue is that you looked at here. Thanks for having me today, Francis. But let me explain a little bit about the role of the component acquisition executives. I'll call those CAEs. DHS invests billions of dollars in major acquisition programs, such as systems to help secure the border, increase marine safety, screen travelers. Those all help them execute its many critical missions. Most components in DHS, such as the Coast Guard, the Transportation Security Administration, Customs and Border Protection, they all have these CAEs, and those are senior acquisition officials that are responsible for oversight of the acquisition programs and the processes within their own components. This oversight includes, for example, representing the organization at department acquisition review boards for major acquisitions and ensuring programs remain within established cost schedule and performance baselines. But what is also important to know in terms of context, typically there's one CAE per component, like I mentioned, the Coast Guard, the Border Patrol, TSA, but the management directorate is a little different. The management directorate is actually located at the department level, and it includes department-wide offices like the Office of the Chief Information Officer or the Office of the Chief Financial Officer. That area, that management directorate actually has five CAE positions for the different areas of responsibility. So that's a little bit unique. And then in general, the management directorate also has oversight of acquisition programs that are a little bit broader and affect more than, com more than one component. So we looked at four component CAEs and then all five of the management directorate CAEs. So regarding the management directorate CAEs, you write in this work, DHS indicated the direct reporting relationship of acting CAEs to the DHS chief acquisition officer makes designating CAEs in the management directorate through this process unnecessary. Is that on the mark or is that off the mark, do you think, Marie? They chose not, I think it's off the mark. They chose not to follow the own process. And this is where one of our primary takeaways focused on CAE oversight. They did not follow their own process for filling CAE positions. And it was primarily in the management directorate that had this issue. Four of the five individuals filling the CAE positions in the management directorate did not go through that completed process of vetting candidates' qualifications against criteria. And then you formally designate those selected individuals in writing. This is important because if the individuals that are holding those positions, they're conducting oversight of big major acquisitions. And if they're not necessarily qualified to do so, 
there are ways to, for the DHS or the components to identify mitigation steps, such as training or ensuring CAE has experienced support staff to help the actual CAE perform that role. And in this particular case, I think where we what we found is that um, the CAEs doing the oversight function, more, because they didn't go through that process, you have no idea that they were actually qualified. Another important area about qualifications that may come into concern is where one of the qualifications we looked at was where the CAE role was not necessarily the primary function for those filling the CAE position. Specifically, some of those CAEs may hold concurrent positions that create the potential or the perception for conflict of interest between acquisition execution and acquisition oversight. Where, what I mean by that is if an individual is responsible for the day-to-day -day execution of an acquisition, that same individual should not be responsible for performing, performing oversight of that execution. Now, since our review was not a compliance audit, we didn't identify specific instances of this conflict of interest, but we did have find that the potential exists. And I can give you like a hypothetical example. Sure, that'd be great. For example, the DHS chief information officer is the acting CAE for their office, for the chief information office. They exercise leadership and authority for all information technology acquisitions, all the systems within the department that are IT related. That's an execution responsibility. That position puts them in the chain of command over acquisition programs in their organization with the goal of getting those capabilities. And a lot of times in typical acquisitions, folks tend to move, get it as fast as possible. I need these things as fast as possible. But when you're acting as a CAE, which is an oversight responsibility, they're also responsible for overseeing acquisitions with a focus on following good acquisition management practices, where, for example, schedule may not necessarily be expedited. And cost is another potential one that we're always concerned about when we look at acquisition programs. Let's say an individual that's filling concurrently an execution position and a CAE position. From an execution perspective, the individual may approve incomplete cost estimates in order to maintain program affordability in the short term. And they would approve this incomplete cost estimate. But from an oversight role, they are not addressing GAO's best practices necessarily for developing credible, accurate, um, well-documented and comprehensive cost estimates if they approve the cost estimate before it's completely done appropriately. Marie Mack, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Up next, defending against China at sea. Straight ahead on Government Matters, using an old law for a new approach to national security. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The House's Future of Defense Task Force calls for a whole-of-government approach to national security. To address the increasing competition from China, the Navy League suggests turning to a century-old law that keeps ships built, owned, and crewed in the United States. John Caskett is National Vice President of Legislative Affairs at the Navy League. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We've talked about the Jones Act before you and I on this program. What is the context, though, of the Jones Act's contribution to what this task force is getting at about a whole-of-government approach to uh, national security? Um, 
The, the Jones Act, for as a reminder, is a, a cabotage law that requires uh, cargo moving between two U.S. points to be on a U.S. built, U.S. crewed, U.S. owned, uh, U.S. flag vessel. And it's been around in some form since the inception of the nation in order to ensure that we have a, a, a secure uh, shipping and shipbuilding industry capable of supporting our economic and national security needs. The concern we have today is that uh, China, uh, as aggressive as they have been in other countries, that if we open up uh, the Jones Act, would uh, unfairly enter the, uh, the domestic shipping trades uh, and potentially cause us uh, a difficulty uh, in our uh, economic and uh, national security uh, arenas. I can go into more detail if you wish. One, one of the issues that you and your colleagues at the Navy League are writing about is something that we see all across the national security landscape, John, and that is that we're up against China and Russia, particularly China, that is willing to subsidize its own industries, and that makes this kind of apples-to-apples apples comparison not possible. You put it this way, state-supported shipbuilding by China and the other top shipbuilding nations make cost comparisons to the U.S. shipbuilding industry incongruous at best. Is that basically the essence of what you're getting at here? Uh, yes, Francis. I mean, the, the shipbuilding industry and in, in, uh, China, as well as the shipping uh, industry, are state-owned enterprises. And there's no transparency on what are the level of subsidies uh, that are provided, either through financing or directly or indirectly. And therefore, uh, for shipbuilding, for example, they basically have driven almost all of their competitors out of the market. Uh, right now, China, Korea, and Japan make up 90% of the shipbuilding industry, and in, in, uh, China is trying to put those two countries out of business as well. They've already put pretty, pretty much us out of business, although China wasn't really the cause. But Europe is right now concerned about their cruise uh, uh, shipping business because the Chinese have gotten into that. So if they decide that they want to target an industrial area for their national security purposes, they will go after it. And they will see benefit of weakening our ability to support our economy by penetrating it with their shipping. And if we decide that uh, to implement policies that they don't like, they can cause uh, economic blackmail like they have done uh, in the Far East uh, when uh, countries don't do what they would like to do. And of course, they could even sabotage if they were running up uh, ships in the Great Lakes or in the on the riverways uh, in case things became more and more ho uh, hot and hostile. Is there some legislative remedy or some other remedy that's necessary or is just continued uh, compliance with the Jones Act sufficient? Maintaining the Jones Act is a start. I mean, our sh shipping and shipbuilding industry uh, is much smaller than it has ever been. Uh, we had 20 shipyards uh, at, after the end of the Cold War uh, that were capable of building large ocean-going ships. We have eight today, and only uh, four of those uh, are building commercial ships. The other are dedicated solely to Navy construction. Uh, with respect to the ships uh, in the U.S. Merchant Marine, uh, we're about a quarter of where uh, we were uh, at the end of the Cold War. And so it's uh, we need to figure out ways to maintain what we have, and there are various options uh, that we have been proposing in our uh, maritime policy on, on how to do that. What, what makes the most sense in your view to get the number back to where it needs to be? 
Well, of course, cargo is king here, and the only way you attract cargo is to get the price of your shipping down uh, or to provide uh, man, uh, legislation like the Jones Act, which mandates uh, certain uh, cargoes to be on ships no matter what it costs. Uh, and uh, right now we're 50 uh, ships short of even operating the, the reserve fleets uh, for a protracted wartime operation. So we have to figure out if fill at least that 50, and much of the 50 should be filled with tankers, because as we were looking at a Chinese scenario, particularly a CSBA study, and Transcom is looking at it today, uh, we are dozens and dozens of tankers short to support a wartime operation in the Pacific. Uh, in, in previous post-Cold War situations, we were able to charter tankers off the market. We don't believe that'll be the case today. So uh, there's a proposed tanker security program uh, that the House has passed that would start with initial 10 tankers. Uh, Congress and uh, Garamendi and Senator DeWerka have proposed an energized shipbuilding, uh, American Shipbuilding Act that would have a percentage of our export oil, crude oil and LNG on U.S. flag and some U.S. built ships that would provide work for shipyards. And the Navy had uh, proposed uh, ways of uh, developing dual-use ships that would be commercially owned, privately owned vessels that would operate along I-595, carrying trailers, 53-foot uh, boxes, uh, just like they are carried between Washington and Alaska today. And those ships could be diverted to wartime operation, as well as an inexpensive way of recapitalizing the ready reserve force instead of building new ships and laying them up. So those are various options uh, that are out there to expand the fleet. But for shipbuilding, we really need a national shipbuilding strategy to maintain at least the four yards that are building commercial ships now that ensure that there's a steady workload of, of uh, government construction, whether it's Navy, Coast Guard, or, uh, or NOAA, as well as the Jones Act uh, ships that need to be built, because uh, that's a variable number. We only have less than 100 ships, and they last around 30 years. That gives you three ships a year to build on a steady average, and they're not steady. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back. You're very welcome, Francis. Thank you again. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.